Grab a Bible, open up to uh, Joshua. We are still in Joshua chapter 6 today. How many of you went to uh, Esparto last week? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of you did. Uh, so in case you don't know, uh, this church, Calvary Baptist Woodland, planted another church in Esparto, Calvary Baptist Church of Esparto. And we like to, a couple times a year, uh, have all of us get together for one, uh, like big church service. And so we did that out in the, at the auditorium at the high school out in Esparto last week. And it was awesome. It was super fun. Thanks for coming. It was great. I, I had the, uh, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho in my head all week long. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> But to, to me, it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing still to me to think that like this, this little, ch- little, little church, Calvary Baptist planted another church. You guys planted a church. That's awesome. You guys are cool. Uh, anyway, it was fun to be able to sing together and to worship together and, uh, and to just hang out and, uh, and encourage them uh, out there. And it's just a, it's a, it's a neat reminder of, of how, uh, God can do something. No, it doesn't matter like how big we are or how, how much money you have or how much research. It doesn't matter. Like, uh, we don't matter. It's, it's what God, uh, has to offer. It's when we're following and obeying and letting God lead. God can do great things. Like a Sparta out there, that's all about God's glory. I mean, that's all about what God, what God can and does do uh, through, you know, kind of small, not that flashy churches. In fact, I think God likes to work that way. I think He likes to work through the smaller, weaker things of the world so that, that He gets the glory that He deserves. So if you were, if you weren't there, last week we continued in our study of Joshua. We talked all about the, the battle of Jericho that's found in Joshua chapter six. And you, and you, you probably know the story. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty famous Bible story. God had promised his people rest. Like a long time ago, God had promised them rest. And, and after 400 plus years in Egypt, and then another 40 years of wandering around in the desert, they were tired. They, you know, you ever been, uh, ever go on vacation somewhere a long way where you gotta take a plane ride to get there? Maybe another country, and it's so much fun getting there. It's so exciting. But getting back, oh, it's brutal, right? Takes so much more time and it just, you just want to go home. Like you just want to go lay in your own bed and you're tired, but you have to fly into San Francisco because you were too cheap to buy the ticket to fly into Sacramento and then drive for another couple hours. Oh, you just want to be home. That, that must have been uh, like, like multiply this by about 400 years. That's how these people felt. They just wanted to be home. They just wanted rest. They were tired. And, and when they get there, when they get right to the edge of the promised land, they're so close they can see it. It's right there. But their work's not done yet. There's still a bunch of people living there and that they got to fight, that they got to kick out. And, and so it started with the first battle here at Jericho. And the battle of Jericho really is God's way of showing His people that the battle really does belong to the Lord. That God's in control. That He's the one that's going to fight for them. And He's going to tear down every obstacle in their way. And He's going to prepare the way that, that this land is theirs just like He had promised to their fathers. But there's still some things that the Israelites need to do in order to take what God has promised them. 
They still got to obey God's instructions. They still had to march around that wall seven times and, and blow the trumpets. They still had to do what God said. And then when the walls came tumbling down, they still had to go into the city and fight for it. And part of that process was killing everybody who lived in Jericho. And the story, it's, it's such a cool miracle from God and it's such a, it's such a good Sunday school lesson and it's exciting. Like they march and the trumpets blow and the walls crumble and yes, God wins and we win and it's, and then it gets like super dark. <laughs> we, let's pick it up at verse 20. Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 20. So the people shouted, the priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Yay! Then they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, Ox and sheep and donkey. Sheep? What's even the sheep? Come on. With the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men uh, who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of of Israel. Then they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joseph spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. With the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The reality of this event in the course of redemptive history is horrifying. The Israelites, at God's command, enter the city and utterly destroy everything. Men and women, young and old, even the animals... And then uh, after Rahab and her, her family has been uh, safely set aside, they burn the whole thing down. And if that wasn't enough, Joshua places a curse on this city. Cursed is anyone who tries to rebuild it. Man, w- women? Like even old people? Kids? How could God allow that? How could a good, loving God, a forgiving, gracious God, condone this kind of killing? There's just, there's no way to read this section of scripture without having lots of questions, without, without being disturbed. It is, it is ugly and it is shocking. 
And it's a passage that have caused some people to really question God and question the Bible and question Christianity. Question that it seems like there's two gods, right? There's this mean, vengeful, angry God of the Old Testament who's killing poor donkeys and sheep. And then there's this nice, loving, gracious God of the New Testament, and they just seem so different. How, how, how is this, how could God allow this, this genocide? This is one of those places where, where, uh, expository preaching is tough. Uh, because, you know, when you pick a book of the Bible and preach through it, there are hard things there. I can't just cherry pick happy verses and, but I don't want to. Like, I don't, I want us to wrestle with this because I guarantee you that there are other people out in the world that are wrestling with this and that are asking these questions. This very passage right here is one of those places that people go to when they want to reject God and reject the Bible. And so we need to address this so that we have answers for them. And, listen, if we are people who who really truly believe in God, like we believe that God is really God, and we believe that the Bible is really God's Word, then we should have no problem asking these kinds of hard questions of the text, right? Knowing that God can handle it, and God's Word can handle it. We need to honestly wrestle with tough passages. And so we're going to do that a little bit today. Let me, I'm going to start by just laying a little bit of a foundation, a little bit of a groundwork of some things that we already know are true. First of all, we know for a fact that there's just one God, right? There's not two gods. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There's just one God. And, and, and God's nature and His person and His character are the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. God is completely consistent. The triune God that we see so clearly in the New Testament was still the same God that you can see in the Old Testament. Right? Last week, remember, if you were there last week, we saw Joshua come face to face with what could only be the pre-incarnate Christ who had come to lead the armies of the Lord. God is every bit as loving and gracious and merciful in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, He's every bit as just and holy and perfect. So we can start from that platform of truth. Second thing that's important for us to understand is that the conquest of the land of Canaan represented a relatively brief and unique period of time in human history. God was their leader. They had no king. God was using Israel to execute His divine justice. Uh, and uh, b- before this and after this, the rules of warfare, rules of engagement are, are uh, very different which means that uh, you can't use Joshua to, to start a new holy war. Sorry, it's not allowed. It's not what that's for. And the third thing I think it's important for us to understand here going forward is that what's happening here is not at all genocide. Anybody who wants to, to, to claim that, that the Old Testament or that God is the God of genocide just hasn't read the passage. It's not at all about ethnic cleansing. 
In fact, in that passage I read, we saw an example of a bunch of people who were spared. And there's a bunch more to come as we study through Joshua. It's really more about divine justice and judgment. And God is consistent with that justice and judgment. He applies the same kinds of standards across the board to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. In fact, we'll see how God applies the same standard of justice to His own people, the Israelites. In fact, I think He's maybe even a little harder on them because they should know better. What we see in the book of Joshua is God executing divine justice on a, on a sinful, evil, rebellious people. If we think about it, what's the, what's the nature of justice? Justice is essentially getting what you deserve. Uh, it's simply being punished for doing something that's wrong or being rewarded for doing something that's right. That's justice. There are, there are laws against speeding, right? And when you speed and get caught and get that ticket, you deserve it. That's a just punishment. Uh, th- those who commit violent crimes and are put in prison should be put in prison. That's a good thing. It would be unjust for them to just be let free. It, it would be unfair. It would be dangerous. Justice isn't a concept really that any of us disagrees with. It's not like it's a thing that we don't think has merit or value. I mean, all you got to do is get punched in the face once and instantly you're thinking about justice. Like that's the vengeance form of it. But from the very beginning, from that first bite of the forbidden fruit, Our question, our problem, our struggle is with who gets to decide what is just and what isn't. Who gets to determine good and evil? Who gets to set the standard? And we think it should be us. Each individual one of us thinks that we should be the standard for justice. We think... And I know we won't admit it, but we think that our personal human justice is better than divine justice. There's a problem with that. The problem with human justice, as opposed to divine justice, is that we as humans are horribly limited, right? We don't know all things. Like we don't, we don't have the ability to understand what's going on inside the hearts of men. We don't understand all things. Really, we don't know much. And on top of that, we're kind of selfish. Which makes our ability to execute any kind of justice iffy at best. Divine justice doesn't work the same way that human justice works, however, because God does know all things. He does understand all things. He does know what's going on in the hearts of men. God alone is just. God alone is right. And we might question His justice, but when we do, it's usually because we, we, we are ignorant and we are limited in our sight. We only see part of the picture. 
What was it unfair or unjust for God to use the Israelites to punish the evil people of Jericho? It kind of seems like it sometimes. It sure seems like it to some people. But I think that's mostly because there's some things that we don't know. But there are a bunch of things we do know. There are a lot of things that the Bible does have to say. In Leviticus 18, God is warning His people about the kinds of sinful, evil, ugly behavior that they need to avoid. He says these kinds of things are the things that the people in the land of Canaan are doing right now. And I don't want you to have anything to do with these horrible things. And then he, he rattles off this big long list of mostly sexual sins. Incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, sacrificing children to Molech. I mean, just really evil, bad things. And then he says in Leviticus 18.24, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. We see in Scripture that the people of Jericho are horribly evil. And God is perfectly holy and just in bringing about punishment through Israel. God's divine justice in this situation is followed by judgment. And that's, that's really what we're seeing here in, in uh, Joshua chapter 6 is the judgment part of God's justice. And, and in this case, the instrument of God's divine justice is, is Israel. God uses them to judge the Canaanites. In the past, God has used all kinds of other things to judge sin, right? He's used uh, floodwaters. God has used fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, snakes, sure, why not? Whatever, whatever we, whatever we need to judge sin and to get people back on track. And in all of those cases, and here in Jericho, God was completely, totally, 100% just in punishing sin and evil. That, that's the part that we struggle with is that we We don't think we should be punished for anything that we do. We don't understand the weight of sin and evil. We we just don't get it. This whole conquest of the land, really all of the book of of John, all that they're doing here and driving out the Canaanites, it's not really about God playing favorites with Israel. It's really... More about God's justice. In Deuteronomy, God issues this warning to His people. I think it's an important one. Uh, He says, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Don't say that. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not for your righteousness or for the uh, uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
I, I love this. This is, this is helpful for, for us too. God here is saying, don't think that the conquest of this land is because of how awesome you are, Israel. How righteous you are. Really, it has more to do with how wicked they are. Israel, you're just my instrument of divine justice here. And then, and then in that same passage, God reminds the Israelites of all the times that they were faithless and whined and complained and, This isn't about you being better than them. God says this is about me keeping my promises to your forefathers and punishing evil. So at this unique point in time, God uses Israel as an instrument of His divine justice to bring about judgment on evil. And and here's the important thing for us to remember. For, for you and I uh, to remember here. We, you, like you and I, all, all of us in this room, n- none of us are being used as instruments of divine justice to bring about judgment on the world that we live in today. That's not our calling, okay? I, I want us to under, I don't think that that's a big, huge problem here at Calvary, but man, there are some churches out there who think that that's their mission. Like that's their divine calling. It's to go out there and, and just pour the heat on the world that we live in. Lots of judgmental, vengeful churches who think that, that their calling is all about judgment and punishment and just stop. Don't do, stop it. Israel was following uh, some explicit orders by God and what they were supposed to do in taking the land. We have some explicit orders that have been given to us as, as the church. That's a different set of marching orders. And we need to follow our orders just like they needed to follow God's orders in doing what God wanted done then. Here's our marching orders from Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You got it? Does that make sense? That, that's our responsibility. That's supposed to be our response to this evil, messed up, sinful world that we live in. We are to overcome evil, not with a sword, but with good. Again, that means no going out and starting holy wars. Okay? You guys got that? God was just in sending Israel uh, to take over the land of Canaan. God, God was absolutely, positively just in doing that. God was just in punishing the sins of the people who lived there. Completely, 100% just in doing that. Now, did God hate those people? No, no way. No. 
So people who were created in his image. Did God want them to be punished? Was God angry and vengeful and mean here? Is the God of the Old Testament just full of justice and judgment and lacking in any mercy or grace? Absolutely not. Again, if you're going to make that accusation against God, it's just because you haven't read the Bible. What we see here in this passage that I just read is is this God who is a God of perfect holiness and justice. A God who will execute divine judgment on people, but He's also a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And God's divine grace is seen all over the place in this passage. How much time did God give the people of Canaan to turn back to Him? How much How much time did He give them to repent? Well, I think it was at least a week, right? I think that maybe that's part of the reason why the marching orders for Jericho was like go around and play some music for seven days. What would have happened if in response to them marching around the city day after day after day, the people of Jericho would have responded the same way the people of Nineveh responded to Jonah with like remorse and repentance and tearing clothes? I think God would have been every bit as gracious and forgiving. He would have been quick to pour out grace. So God gave him at least a week, right? But I think it was more than that. Uh, it had to be at least 40 years, right? Because for 40 years, we know that the people in Jericho had heard about all that God had done in rescuing Israel from Egypt, right? When they go to, to, to Rahab, she said, yeah, we know all about you guys, we know all about what your God has done. And if and if the rest of the people in Jericho had responded with the same level of faith as Rahab did, then they would have been just as saved as Rahab and her whole family. Like all of them are rescued because of their faith in God. Not everyone in Jericho was killed, right? It's a whole bunch of people that was saved. Because this God of divine justice and judgment is also a God of great mercy and grace. But God didn't just give them a week. He didn't just give them 40 years. Really, it was closer to 500 years. All the way back in Genesis 15, God makes this promise to to Abraham. Uh, God says to him, uh, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. He's talking about Egypt. Abraham, there's going to come a time where your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. And God says, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And then God, God shows Abraham uh, the whole land and promises it to him as an inheritance. This is going to be yours and you're going to have a ton of kids and it's going to be awesome. Why didn't God just give Abraham the land that day that he shows it to him? Because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. Because God is just and it and it wasn't time yet 
Because God is so incredibly gracious that he wanted to give them as much time as possible to repent and turn. I think that, that the people of God must have been anxious for God to keep this promise that he had made to Abraham. Boy, after a hundred years, they're probably getting restless, right? After 200, 300 years, is he even gonna keep this promise? Why is it taking so long? But God keeps his promises. Sometimes I feel like, like we're in that same spot. Like God's promised us rest. He's promised that to us. And man, there are some days where I am tired of this sinful world that we live in. When's that day of rest going to come? Jesus said he was going to come back. Is he ever coming back? Peter answers that question in 2 Peter 3. Don't let this one fact escape your notice, he says, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. God's not slow about the return of Christ. That's not why He's delayed. It says, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient and He's merciful and He wants all to come to repentance. Just like He was in the Old Testament. God's patience and His mercy and His grace can be seen all over the Old Testament. The idea that the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is nice, is that's just not true. And God's character and God's love and God's patience and God's justice are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why then? Why does it seem like God is so much nicer in the New Testament? Why does it seem like the New Testament is so much happier? There's so much more talk of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Where is God's justice and judgment in the New Testament? Where is it? It's, it's at the foot of the cross, right? It's at the, that's where it is. It's still there. It's right there. We're all, every single one of us born as children of wrath. We are all dead in our sins because of what our parents, Adam and Eve, did in introducing sin and death into this world. Because of that, we suffer. We have our own uh, personal sins and our own selfish uh, behaviors that separate us from a holy and perfect God. The Bible says that no one's righteous, not even one. It says that the wages of our sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve because of our sin is death. That's just. That's a right punishment. But because of God's grace... In the Old Testament, he set up this like substitution thing. Like, all right, I'm going to pour my wrath out on, on these animals who are a sacrifice. They're going to take the heat for you. But they were insufficient, limited, weak, had to be repeated over and over again. They're just a shadow of the better sacrifice that was still yet to come. And Jesus Christ, as, as fully God, perfect and sinless, and yet fully human, able to be our representative, 
on Him all the wrath of God that's supposed to be poured out on us is poured out on Him instead. He receives the full brunt of God's divine justice and judgment. And as a result, when we place our faith in Him, we receive all of this grace and mercy and forgiveness that we don't deserve. God's justice and divine judgment land on Jesus and God's grace and mercy are poured out on us. Man, that's a good deal for us. Romans 5, 8 through 10, it said, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with Him. And then John chapter 3. Verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God is the same. Past, present, and future. He's always been a God of perfect divine justice who judges righteously. And He's always been a God that shows divine grace and mercy to those who believe in Him. God, I thank You so much that You are a God who is just and perfect and holy. Thank You that You are a God that we can trust I thank You that You're a God who is also incredibly merciful and gracious, patient. Thank You, God, that while we were dead in sin, while we were lost and hopeless, You found a way for us to be reconciled back to You. That Your divine justice is satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through our faith in Him, Now, instead of being under Your wrath, we can stand in grace, adopted as Your children, accepted into Your family. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank You, God. Thank You so much, Lord, for what You've accomplished on our behalf. Thank You that Your character and that Your nature and that Your goodness and that Your love are consistent. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.